This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Huzo. Huzo is an acronym for human sound. Huzo delivers uniquely enhanced human toning sounds through headphones as well as through pads placed on your major acupuncture meridians on your body, which are your wrist and your ankles, thereby introducing a specific modulated frequency that are balancing and harmonizing throughout your body. One session takes about 30 minutes, and during that time, a strange series of tones create a natural resonance in your body that Huzo claims counteracts the harmful EMFs, toxins, and stresses you are exposed to during the day or just normal living, all while balancing the body, leaving you with a clear head, improved health, better sleep, and the feeling of calmness and well-being. You can try one at www.thisishuzo.com slash rebel. Use the code REBEL25 to save $25. The folks at Huzo even have a great payment solution for you with terms up to 12 months. Check it out. I highly recommend this machine. It has changed my life and calmed me out. Thank you and enjoy this episode. Their health. You know, you can have all the education you want, all the resources you want, but if you don't have your health and don't enjoy it, it's huge. And I think one of the things Americans have been sacrificing for in our culture for the last couple of decades is our health, you know? And so I just want people to be healthy. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. Welcome to episode number 113 with Dr. Aaron Hartman. Dr. Aaron Hartman is a board-certified family medicine practitioner, a clinical researcher, and a functional medicine practitioner. After years in family practice, he felt called to make a dramatic shift and begin to pursue functional medicine for his own family's health. Soon, Dr. Hartman recognized the benefit of functional medicine for anyone who has suffered unnecessarily from a system that fails to support whole person health. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last year, you know there's a lot of debate of our healthcare system, the CDC, fuzzy fossey, vaccines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this is not something new. We do not have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. In my opinion, the sign of a good doctor is one that will work with you to get you off medicine instead of writing more prescriptions. If you have a physician that is writing more prescriptions and not working with you to get you off the medication, I suggest you find a new doctor. In today's episode, we are going to explore why our healthcare system is failing us. I hope you enjoy this episode and much love. 
Dr. Aaron Hartman, welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great today. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. I'm really interested in your story, and I'm looking forward to discussing the functional medicine world with you and how it fits into today's society in the future. Before we dive into today's episode, one question I have and that I enjoy hearing answers of from my guest is, what was the catalyst for you becoming A, a doctor, and more so, furthermore, for you especially, moving into the world of functional medicine? That's a great question. Um, I think what started me just wanting to be a doctor was just growing up um, in Harrisonburg, which is a um, small town in Virginia. And our family doctor was a country doctor even further out. He was like 45 minutes out of, out of the city. And yeah, it was a little small brick house that was at the end of a driveway from his house. And um, in Virginia, lots of Mennonites and migrant workers and people from all around would come to his office. And he'd go in there. I'd go in there with my mom with a sore throat, and we'd go back, talk to him for you know ten or fifteen minutes. He'd put his, put his stethoscope on my chest, and I'd take a big breath in, and he'd shake out a couple little pills and give them, and we'd get them there, give my mom, and I'd go home, and my sore throat would go away, and I was like, I can do this. I can stick a stethoscope on people's chest and shake out some pills and help people. That's because that's what I thought he was helping people. And I saw he was helping people from all around that part of Virginia. And it seemed seemed doable. So I just, from second grade on, I'm like, I'm going to be a doctor. When I, I'm going to be a family doctor. I'm going to be like him, you know? And so um, there was a stint when LA Law was a big deal back in ninth and 10th grade. I'm going to be a lawyer for like a year. And then Mr. Smith, who was my, he probably doesn't, he, might, he may or may not remember me, um, was my science teacher. And he was like, Hartman, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm like, I'm gonna be a lawyer, and, you know. And he's like, for that one year, right? And he was like, oh, it's a great loss of science. And I was like, well, maybe I should be a doctor instead. So I kind of went back on the straight and narrow. And that, that's that's kind of the simplistic thing for what kind of got me into be interested in medicine, and obviously lots of hard work and years of study. But as far as functional medicine, what ultimately got me into functional medicine was my family. My um, wife is a pediatric occupational therapist, and her field of expertise was kids with special needs. So she would have these patients on her, her list of people she was taking care of. And with rare diseases that I'd never heard of, and I'd never learned that in medical school, we started dating actually when I was after the end of my intern year when um, my, the 120-hour work weeks cut back to 80-hour work weeks and I had a little more time to actually, you know, hang out with people. But, you know, these, so these patients, that I, like, these are kind of like, what is this, you know? And so we got married. And after being um, married for two years, there was a little girl was one of her um, patients that she'd been taking care of since she came out of the hospital. And my wife was like, hey, you know, this little girl, her her foster home is closing down. Would you consider taking her in? And I was like, well, I guess we can think about it. We'll bring her in. And my, my, my thinking at that point in time, I can always give her back, right? Um, <laughs> and, um, and she's my daughter. Um, that's Anna. And so you're know, having that little girl. And all of a sudden now, a little girl who literally, I have to feed her everything because... She couldn't really eat. She couldn't sit up on her own. She wasn't ever supposed to talk. We were told that she'd be a vegetable. And my wife said, I see something in there. There's something there that other people aren't seeing. My, my wife had faith in her. And so the, I think the turning point with me was one of her specials as a pediatric gastroenterologist said, this little girl's not eating enough. She's too small. Let's do a surgical procedure, put a tube in her belly so we can pour a formula in so she can gain weight. And my wife, again, who's the pediatric occupational therapist, was like, well, that's going to affect crawling. Because even though she wasn't supposed to crawl and she wasn't supposed to talk, yeah, we, that wasn't, we didn't really accept that. We had faith that we're going to do all the right stuff, you know? And so my wife was like, well, she won't learn to walk if she has a tube in her belly. She, you're talking, you got to chew and swallow and tongue stuff. So we gently declined 
that surgical procedure. We had, you know, child protective services were called on us and came and checked out, checked us out to make sure we weren't doing any bad thing, you know. And then six months later, she found a growth chart for kids with special for kids with cerebral palsy. My daughter was right in the middle. This expert whose field of expertise was pediatric gastroenterology had no idea there's a growth chart for kids with CP. And if we had just followed the expert opinion and done the expert thing, my daughter's health be vastly different than it is now. And that was my eyes were first opening that experts don't always know everything. And the second experience was, you know, a year or two later, another you know, eye, eye specialist was like, hey, her eyes move around. They kind of move. She's got this strabismus where they don't, they don't track evenly. Like one eye goes this way, one guy goes that way. And they're like, let's make it look pretty. Let's do eye surgery on her. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, I'm sorry. This, we've, already, we've already been done this one. So we just found an older doctor who'd been a pediatric ophthalmologist for 40 years. He's like, you know what? It's cosmetic. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's not going to affect anything functionally. And so that was just my eyes were open. Like there's other answers out there. And so we just started, and we already started changing our diet, changing our environment. I started studying um, nutrigenetics with Dr. Amy Asco, how SNPs affect metabolism and started applying that stuff. And that's kind of what started me down this rabbit hole. You know, it's like Alice in Wonderland. Once you get there, you see the world's in color. It's like, I can't do black and white anymore. The world's in color and it's huge. And that's kind of what started my journey. And it's Every three to six months, I learn something new that radically changes how I look at, look at patients. And I've been doing that since 2000, I don't know, 2007, seven, six or seven. And it's, that's got me here. Okay. So how, how long did you practice as a family practitioner before you did your studies at IFM? I started 2012. So I, I started my residency in 2000, graduated in 2003. So um, it was about nine to 10 years before I actually started formally studying functional medicine. I think any well-trained physician who reads a lot, you know, in 2000, I knew in Splenda increased the risk of diabetes. I remember being in Dr. Houghton. He was one of my attendings in my, in my residency training, waiting for him to present a case to him, looking at postgraduate medicine on his desk and seeing this article about artificial sweeteners and diabetes. 2000, okay, 2000. Right. This was, you know, 21 years ago, opening up and seeing a, a little chart that said, hey, Splenda use, here's your A1C going up. And so I think any well-read, well-researched physician, you know, understands, hey, there's more to than just quote-unquote standard of care. You know, in 2003, I already knew vitamin D was associated with prostate cancer and different things. So already when I joined my practice in 2007, I was already checking D levels and B12 levels on patients. So, you know, it wasn't full-blown, quote-unquote, functional medicine, but already my, my toes are already kind of wet, right? Um, so to speak. It was in 2012 was when I formalized it, when I was like, I'm going all in. And I started actually with the AIHM at that point in time, which is American Institute for Holistic Medicine, um, which turned into ABIHM, which you know, you know, is now like the board for integrative and holistic medicine. Did a, a week conference with them. And I was like, that's when my eyes were opened. Like, I have no idea what these... I remember Dr. Gabby on stage, he wrote the textbook of nutritional medicine. I was looking at him talk. I'm like, I have no idea what all 3 carbamol is. Right. <laughs> yeah. What is sulforaphane? What are these words this guy's using? I've never heard this before. And that was when like, literally I was just dunked. And then I had looked for, I was like, wow, that was a great, was a week. I'm a very academic minded guy. I like reading. I, I'm the guy who reads textbooks, right? Right, right. <laughs> I'm the guy, yeah, I've got my textbook immunology, right? I've got my, vac- my, my book from vaccines and autoimmunity that I've read sitting on my floor right here beside my feet, right? Now, that's kind of where my mind works. And so that's when I kind of, looked at the different organizations and I was like, I think the IFM, the way they teach the way of thinking is, is the way I want to go. So I dived in that world 
finished that and then went through A4M and then dived in and finished their fellowship. And I think it's in functional metabolic and regenerative medicine. And so, um, and then in that path, you always find new things like Dr. Yasko's information, for example, or Dr. Patricia Kane with um, mm-hmm. with lipid medicine, or you always find these little things. You kind of take these deep dives or Dr. Shoemaker with molded or, or Dr. Afrin with mast cell activation syndrome. And so it's so, it just keep on growing, you know? And so like, you know, it's just this infinite knowledge and you, you never stop learning, you know? Right. It does, I mean, we're, before we started, we were talking about Jeffrey Bland's book, uh, Disease, Disease Illusion? No, it? Yeah, the book Disease Delusion, yeah. Delusion, yeah. I mean, Dr. Jeffrey Bland's, of course, the grandfather of, of course, actually, Hippocrates was before him, but but he's the grandfather of functional medicine or the godfather or whatever you want to, yeah. but he's, <clears throat> he's a, a genius man. In my opinion, functional medicine has become, started to become more, of a way of practice then because our healthcare system's broken. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And I think COVID, in my mind, COVID is the accelerant. You know, the, the functional medicine has been catching on. You know, the um, Cleveland Clinic started the like the largest, as far as I know, this the largest functional medicine clinic, I think, in the world. Right. They started at the Cleveland Clinic, which is probably one of the most prestigious hospital systems in the country, you know, back in, I think it was 2016, maybe don't quote me on that, but it was about that time frame. So there's already, it was already kind of inklings out there. You got, you know, Mark Hyman who's written like 10 books, right? right. You know, but it still wasn't mainstream. You know, I think with COVID people are realizing that it's like people are researching a waste Pepsi, vitamin D, you know, there are other things, you know, zinc, you know, lotus naltrexone, you know, air quality, you know, hypermobility, mast cell activation syndrome, all these things are associated with severe COVID, post-COVID, like, and it's not in the conventional world. And that's where I think functional practitioners, we need to kind of come alongside our conventional colleagues and go, look, we've got the answers for these patients and you can't take care of it in 12 minutes. No. You know, and so let's help. And that's kind of one of the things I'm trying to start doing right now is put together things that people, the physicians in my clinic can start because we're seeing the, um, the wave is starting. I, I call it the post-pandemic epidemic. You know, <laughs> it, I'm you're laughing, yeah, but if, you're right. If, if 10% of people who get COVID will have symptoms of long COVID at least one six months later, and if 70% of hospitalized patients, okay, will have a symptom six months later, it's, it's a wave, right? And so we're not ready for it, but that's where I think functional medicine practitioners, we got the skill set, we got the, the tools, you know, air quality. You know, we knew last summer air quality increased your risk for severe lung inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, and severe inflammation post-COVID and with COVID, right? So I was talking about that last summer saying, hey, HEPA filters, check your house out, mold, workplace. You know, that's the reason why things may have been so bad in the Wuhan province, Lombardy, Italy, which is where the industrial center is in Italy, you know. Um, And still in the conventional world, we're not talking about air quality with lung disease. Even NOAA, they've been talking about air quality with Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease for 10 years, maybe. Right. You know? Right. So the one thing that bothers me the most about the COVID thing is that we're not really just talking about what we're putting in our bodies. I mean, they're closing these fancy restaurants that serve great, good food and leaving McDonald's, Burger King, Pizza Hut open kind of rubs me the wrong way because those are the things that are, are also a catalyst or driver for COVID. Is I mean, obesity and type two diet or type two diabetes, not type one. Well, type one is, but type one, there's not much you can do about. But anyway, I want to dig into this topic today of uh, conventional medicine versus functional medicine, but more with a functional medicine overview, because I'd, let's face it, 
conventional doctors have a place. My sister had an accident. A deer came through the windshield and hit her. And her head hit the side window. And had she had traumatic brain injury, that doctor saved her life. So conventional medicine has a place. And I'm not knocking conventional medicine because it does have a place, but it's it's more disease-centered, in my opinion, than patient-centered. Do you agree or disagree? Matt, I think I agree. You know, what what conventional medicine is really good at in America is acute care. You know, United, you know the University of Miami was one of the first places in the world to do um, aortic valve replacements through catheterization. And so the head of the Canadian healthcare system was flying to Miami to get his valve replaced, you know, this was probably 10 plus years ago, without getting his chest cut open. I mean, we're great at that. You know, one of the Jordan princes was flying here, you know, a decade ago to get his, his um, cancer treated. We're great at acute care. You know, like you were saying, you know, what we're, what we're really bad at is chronic disease management mm-hmm. and prevention. We talk about pre- prevention in our country is, you know, get your flu shot, screen for diabetes, check your cholesterol and your blood pressure, check a BMI. And that's, you know, that's the new diagnosis of, you know, primitive care. And it's like, well, that's not even the tip of the iceberg as far as things to do. And that's where I feel like functional medicine shines is our ability to look at a healthy patient and do lab testing and say, you have these nutrient deficiencies, you have endothelial dysfunction, which is inflammation in the smallest lining of your arteries, which are, is an risk factor for cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and severe COVID, by the way. Let's address that, you know. Um, and that's where I think where I think functional medicine comes, and that's where we shine is in prevention and in reversal of some diseases. You know, if you've got an autoimmune issue, if your body's attacking itself, can we find the trigger, the thing that set you up, for, the thing that triggered this? Can we find the antecedent, the thing that set you up for this or became before the media, the thing that can, that's continuing your autoimmunity? Can we find these things and address them? And I've had patients who've had their autoimmune diseases go into remission. That's profound to see that. Not just once or twice, but over again, over a period of years, you know. And some patients have been complicated and required lots of things. And some patients, you know, I have a couple of inflammatory bowel disease patients who simply did all immune paleo diets. Right. And I watched the sed rates come down. You know, I watched the diarrhea go away. I watched the joint pains go away. I watched the faces start to fill out because they were losing so much weight. And one, one of my patients, actually, ER nurse, kind of interesting, she um, came to me and had joint aches and pains, and her ANA was positive. Now, she didn't officially had lupus, but she hurt. She did an autoimmune paleo diet. A year later, her ANA was negative. And this is an ER nurse. So she's like, she's seeing lupus patients in stage renal disease on dialysis. So when her ANA was positive and she was like, what can I do? I'm like, well, let's start with this. She already knew what the end game was if she didn't. So, you know, she right. was like, she was there. And now we're out five years now, ANA is still negative and she's, and she's on the same diet. And it's like, Giving people that option, I think, at least we should give people the option. Right. You know? Right. I was, I interviewed Dr. Francisco Contreras a little bit ago, and he has the Oasis of Hope clinic in in Tijuana, Mexico for cancer patients. And he, you know, one of his big things is that he treats the cancer patient as a whole person versus the disease. Now, he said there's times, and he does it with, conventional or holistic medicine, except for somebody has colon cancer, in order to get him to poop, we have to clear that out. Yeah. You know, so I I think in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but a sign of a good doctor is one that 
will work to get you off the medications and start writing more prescriptions? I think I'm a, a good physician listens to the patient. Okay. So you listen to what the patient's saying. You know, and that's one of the things, it's really interesting, the, def, the definition of evidence-based medicine. You know, part of that is, position, is, is patient preference. And we forget, like the original definition from the 80s of, of evidence-based medicine isn't simply taking research articles and sticking on your forehead. So you're a diabetic. Here's your diabetic research study. It's evidence-based. It actually took into account patient preference. You know, and I think that's huge. That's where making it truly personalized medicine. And that's Dr. Blaine you mentioned. He refused the term personalized medicine, right. um, which is the, the different, different ways of saying functional medicine. You know, we're actually asked, I find out where you're coming from, your history, what your preference is. And some people's preference is to get off all their medications. And you got to be willing to work hard. And some people's preference is just not to get on more medications. Right. And that's where, you know, it, the, I think the example I think about, you know, you're quitting smoking. You know, the data is I have to suggest you quit smoking once. I mean, I'm sorry, seven times before you attempt once. You know, and it's like I have to be there to like to kind of guide patients as a, as a doctor, you know, an educator, a teacher. Part of it is to educate patients and walk them through. And some patients, it's a journey. We're on a journey. And so someone right. might come to office and their journey is I want to be off these medications. I'm like, let's do it. Let's get your weight down. Let's change your diet. Let's change your, let's do all these things. Right. And some patients are like, I just want to be around when my daughter graduates. Okay. And maybe I can guide them right. to like have a greater goal, you know, um, than that. But that's where I think listening to people, where they're at. And it's like, but this is hard. It's hard to do that when you've got seven to nine minutes with a patient. How do I listen to you? Right. Where you're coming from? I, the, our current system only, and then back to your original thing with the system, it's like, if I only got seven to nine minutes, I listen to your problem. I have to treat you. I'm measuring on metrics. Now I'm being looked at online based on you know patient ratings. I have to make you happy. And so it's just all these pressures, keeping patients happy, time limits, just are most prop propelling the dysfunction in our system. So how do you fix that? I mean, insurance companies mandate that, right? It's, you know, it's, it's a payment system. It's like, you know, ultimately, it's, it's, I hate to say follow the money, but ultimately the, the system is driven by the payers. And, and that's, you know, most practices, Medicare, right. and then um, private insurance systems. So they determine what the value is. You know, it's not, it used to be back in the day, I worked for you, come to see me in the office, you know, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, I'm your personal doctor, I work for you. Well, we're in the, the new world of, you know, hospital systems, standards of care, you know, quality metrics. Now I'm being graded by the state, by the federal government, by insurance companies. If I don't meet their metrics, I get um, lower reimbursements. I get, you know, less stars. So your copay goes up to see me. So instead mm. of paying your $10 copay, you pay a $40 copay. So guess what? You're not going to see me anymore, right? And so there's all these outside pressures. And you think you come to see me, you think I'm just there to take care of you. And like, you're actually number five on the list of things to do. I got to check off these boxes here, circle these things, make sure I'm asking you the right screening questions, you know, all these kind of things. I have to screen you for depression. And then after I'm done with all that, the time it's left over. So what can I do for you today? That's like, when people say, talk about quality metrics, right. it sounds nice. You know, they say quality driven care, all these terms. Yeah, it's not, you know, as advertised. So one of the things that I see, and I really want to get into your pillars of functional medicine, but one of the things I see is just, just the basics, like the lab, blood chemistry analysis, you know, normal versus optimal. I hate to rag on this, but if I see somebody with a 5.4 or 5.3 hemoglobin A1C, 
that was six months ago and the 4.8, I'm starting to see a trend, you know, and I want to talk to him about it. Like, Hey, this is something we need. We need to address some dietary changes, but even like, I don't even off the top of my head. I don't normally I think is what four below 5.5, right. Or 5.7. Well, pre, the, the official term for it depends on the lab, either 5.7 or 5.8. Okay. Different labs will use a different one. Cause they're all, but it's, Five seven five eight and it's a six point four is your pre diabetic range, but you know five point five is not optimal to what you're saying. You know, right. so optimal is, is in my mind is the level below which there's no increased risk of any disease, micro disease, microvascular small vessels, macrovascular big right. vessels, like no risk period. And that's according to the data, which we were talking about this before we started today. Right, right. Today that's five point zero, right? And no insurance is going to pay for an A one C on someone. It's not, you know, diabetic or pre-diabetic, you know. And actually, physicians, you know, in Medicare still considers A1Cs experimental for screening for diabetes. Right. So if I do an A1C on, on, a, on a Medicare patient, if I don't have them sign a piece of paper saying they realize it won't be paid for, if they don't sign it, I have to actually pay for the lab personally. Wow. Yeah, they're called ABNs. You got to fill them out. You forget to fill it out. So what the tendency is just not to order anything Medicare won't pay for because if my nurse forgets to have you sign that piece of paper on the way right. going out... When they don't pay for it, then I'm expected, like, I am actually legally bound to pay for that lab. Wow. So, like, my sister has has been dealing with osteoporosis, and it runs in our family. And one thing I wanted to see when she asked me what I thought, I, I, I said, well, is she running a full female hormone panel? And she says what she didn't know. So she asked, and they refused to do that. You know, I, basically, what I was looking for is the balance of her hormones and estrogen to see where that fits in and the big picture. And the other one that pisses me off a lot is thyroid and TSH. You know, if you have somebody has that I can see has a thyroid issue from other markers, you know, I want to see more than just a TSH. So, but before we get into your, I want to go over from your eyes, optimal, normal, and we is does it is that common practice for insurance companies not to run, not pay for those if it depends on which lab you're referring to so for an a1c some insurance carriers will pay for an a1c as part of a, a physical but some don't like you know certain hmos won't pay for an a1c for um a screening test unless you're diabetic you have to have a, a diagnosis code e11.9 is a diagnosis <laughs> code for a diabetic you know if you don't have that code they won't pay for it you know, Medicare is one it's one of the biggest, I mean, I think it's in my practice, it accounts for about 40% of the patients I see in my primary care office. You know, for them, I can't order an A1C if they're not diabetic, unless I make up a diagnosis code of you know elevated sugar. You know, right. um, the reality is is half of all Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. So it's not a big stretch to check an A1C on those patients, you know, and use that code. But technically, it's a stretch for me because I don't know their sugars are elevated until like the results come back. But the reality is it's almost always the case, you know, right. that's where, you know, that's where people don't realize it's, it's, and this test came out in 1996. Right. It's not, you know, I remember that was when it first came out. Endocrinologists were all excited about the A1C thing. Oh my gosh. I remember the guy I was working with as a student was so excited about it. And we're talking about it and it's still considered experimental by, um, it's by Medicare for wow. screening for diabetes, you know? All right. Let's, what are the pillars of functional medicine? So the pillars of functional medicine are is, is that foundation upon which everything else is built. Okay. So it's diet, exercise, sleep, stress, relationships. 
You know, I would probably add some other things in there, like environment and stuff like that. But those are like the, the main things, the pillars upon which everything else is built. So when you see it, I see someone come to my office and they've got chronic fatigue, fibro, immune issue, gut issues, anxiety, depression. The question is, okay, sleep, how's your sleep? And these pillars, these foundational things are the things that affect everything else. I mean, diet affects everything. Sleep, stress. You know, it's interesting relationships, how we relate with those around us. I mean, if COVID's taught us anything, we kind of sort of need, we need each other, right? Taking people away, from, you know, this isolation has is, is created a whole new, this thing actually is a new thing called re-entry um, anxiety disorder when people actually are getting stressed from re-entry. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's like, we kind of need people, you know? And so the foundational things are the things upon which everything else is built, right? So people come to me, it's like, you want this cool little, Fancy supplement or this cool technique that they're doing over in Germany for you know you know um, chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. And it's like if your diet is filled full of processed oils right. and sugar and artificial sweeteners, which are hormonal disruptors, then you know even the medications I give you for the pain from the for fiber and chronic fatigue, they don't work. They don't work optimally, you know. So the foundational things are those those basic things that everybody should strive to do as best they can. Okay. So let's talk about how to fix this system or what you believe, like functional medicine versus conventional medicine and how moving forward, we can bring this together to help everybody out. Because that's what we're we're here to do. I mean, functional medicine is basically driven to get to the root cause. Conventional medicine is trying to fix a problem without bailing the whole boat boat up. You know, functional medicine is trying to fix the leak to begin with. In your opinion, what do you recommend for people listening? Like questions they can ask their doctor, how we and also how we fix this. I think ultimately, you know, in our country, most indices are primarily consumer driven. You know, they're driven by individual voting with their dollars, choosing X, Y, Z. And I think that's where education, that's where podcasts like what you're doing here come into play. That's where what I'm trying to do and with um, our community we're putting up and with social media, just getting people aware that there is another way and getting them educated. So they start asking their physicians about, hey, what about this? And so if people hear about this enough, you know, functional medicine, no one knew what that was right. 10 years ago. Now, actually, doctors are like, yeah, I've, I've heard about that. Yeah, I think you need to see a functional medicine. They're complex, complex care doctors. It's a little more than that. But, you know, that's the way in my community, doctors are thinking about functional medicine with the complex care doctors, you know. I think educating people through social media, through podcasts, um, to the point that then consumers and patients can then start voting with their who they choose to be their doctor, you know. Ultimately, the system is gonna is gonna lack is gonna is is slowing this whole process down. And so that's where you see most functional medicine practitioners are cash based practices. You know, um, they don't deal with insurances. Right. Insurances don't let us do these things you're talking about. And I think the push is ultimately going to be to like create enough health coaches, trained practitioners, etc., that people have options. And then courses, like we were, we started a whole online community where we have courses where people can come and learn about functional medicine. And that's kind of my contribution to like help people become educated. Because I think ultimately people, like the idea about functional medicine, it's the hero's journey, right? And so I think about Lord of the Rings, right? You're Frodo. It's like you're carrying that ring of doom. That is your, your weight to bear. But you need a team around you. You need right. 
I'm Gandalf. I show up from time to time, give you a word of wisdom, go this way, you know. But you got that team around you. You've got your Samwise, you got your Legolas, you got your Gimli, right? I think ultimately the hero's journey is the individual discovering this. And I think that's where functional medicine can help educate people, help them with the path, put the providers and people, the resources around them. Because this kind of medicine requires, this is another big difference between you know, functional medicine and conventional. Conventional medicine, the therapies are done to people. You come to me, I give you, I, I treat you with this medication. I do a surgical procedure, right? In the functional medicine world, you are engaging with your health and engaging with diet, lifestyle, all these things. You are an active participant. And our, and our model is very, the current model, the acute care model is going to be passive. You have a heart attack, a stroke, your car accident, you're passive. You're not right. going to tell a nurse, you don't, can't tell a neurosurgeon what to do, right? Right. So in that case, yeah, do what they do. You know, get the, get the, the borehole so you don't have your pressure in your head build up. But with functional medicine, it's the idea is that for these chronic issues that take years to develop, your cardiovascular disease starts in your mid to late teens, right? Decades before your first heart attack. That's where functional medicine shines to get the team around you. I think that's where education, encouragement, empowerment, that's what we're trying to do with our stuff. I think that's what you're doing is you're educating people, encouraging them to get engaged, again, the tools they can, they, they can then own their own health. I think that's where it has to go. It's, it's not going to be a top-down thing. I think it's going to be a bottom-up thing. Bottom-up? Yeah. I agree. I mean, there's a lot of good books. There's a lot of good podcasts out there for people listening. There's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, Mark Hyman, you mentioned our, his, his podcast, Pharmacy. It's spelled farm It's a great podcast. And, you know, I think the problem, I think, though, still lies with misaligned incentives, insurance companies, like we talked about. Big Pharma, I mean, Big Pharma's a huge influence, including medical schools. I don't know if it's true or not, because I didn't go to medical school, but I've been, you know, from what I've read, a lot of the medical schools are supported by Big Pharma. Supported? Um, not supported, but I guess that's a poor choice of words, but somehow intertwined financially or... I'm not sure about that. I know that when I went to school, like a large part of the funds came from the federal government. Okay. And so there was guidance about how you education, you know, like my spot, the, the, um, the residency program got so much money every year. It was like about $75,000 a year they got per resident. And so the medical schools had to stay certified, which meant they had to follow government regulations. I think, you know, there's a lot of issues with the healthcare system, but I think you have to think, yeah, I have to remind myself, you know, Hand washing, Ignaz Simmelweis, you know, he lost his entire career over hand washing because no one believed in it. He got kicked out of the healthcare system. It took 30 years for hand washing to catch on. Smoking in the United States, right? It took us 50 years, 7,000 research articles before the Surgeon General of the United States said, you know what? That causes cancer, right? So I think we have to realize what government and, and organizations, what these things are, are good for. And it's not quick response, it's not fast response. And that's where it, I think. There definitely is a misalignment of resources in the delivery of care. But I think we're expecting these massive behemoth organizations to do what they're just not designed to do. You know, mm-hmm. how long did it take for us, our government to figure out masks help with COVID? It's like five or six months. And I was listening to conversations. I'm like, surgeons have been using masks for like 100 years. Like I'm, I just finished doing a history of Rome in my personal studies. And they were using masks for the mines, you know, in um, the colonial times in, um, South, in Peru, they were using masks to help prevent exposure to the... the um, the mercury dust in the mines. I mean, we, we've been using masks for, for a long time, right? So all of a sudden now is a controversial right. if they help or not. Like that's whether you, you know, that's like, that's 
when we talk about governmental systems that we're talking about, it's not designed or suited to be a quick response. That's true. Mass, let's talk about masks for a minute. I'm a I'm not an anti-masker. I'm a more anti-masker and the fact the type of mask you're using. Like a polyester piece of cloth over your mouth is not a mask. Correct. <laughs> Correct. So I, I mean, like, and I I don't know if that's where double masking came from. But I mean, in my opinion, yeah. if you're gonna mask, wear a KN9 or wear an N95 or a KN95. Agreed. That that's I think, you know, that's where, you know, there's been so many messaging issues with this whole thing. You know, N95, K9, they work. They remove 95% of the, part, the particulates, you know, PM2.5, these microparticulates that cause lung inflammation. You know, it's really interesting. Across the country, physicians, I've had patients with COPD, with chronic lung diseases that have not had a flare of their disease this season. I've heard that story over and over again. I'm starting to wonder, is it because people are, are filtering out... The particulates in the air. I mean, you figure half the buildings in the country have water damage, have mold or dirty. You know, you just got to wonder, you know, with we're seeing less kids with RSV in the hospital. So there's something going on right now. We're not quite sure with this whole COVID mask experiment. But I th- there, there's that thing where it's like getting masks, people getting available to masks, and then something versus nothing. And that's where I think you start losing stuff where like your K95 and 95, yes, they work. Does the bandana around the face work. I mean, it, it works if you mow in your yard so you don't get as much, you know, pollen right. stuff. Right. From mowing. Yeah, I see the guys going in the yard where there's things all the time. I mean, it, it, does that help prevent, you know, COVID? Yeah, maybe not. You know, there's, there's no studies on right. bandanas around the face because you're going to study an N95 mask, right? I can't, you know, so that's where I think, that's where the whole political and then the whole mask or not mask or thing is just confused the whole thing. And then the whole thing, Again, with the messaging at the level of the federal government, masks work, they don't work, they work, they don't work. I mean, it just, you know, how long did it take for us to figure out they're, they're actually help? And it was half a year. I mean, half a year, literally. Right. I mean, that's, that's it's insane. That's where I feel like it's, yeah, it's just, it's a hard, it's unfortunate something as simple as a mask became political, can become a political thing, you know? I mean, <laughs> let's face it, this whole thing is, this whole thing has caused a lot of controversy. A lot of uncertainty between a lot of Fossey, Fuzzy Fossey, the CDC. <laughs> I mean, now we're into the whole the whole vaccine thing. Does the vaccine work? Is the vaccine going to prevent it? Is the vaccine going to prevent the spread? I mean, there's a whole lot of, and honestly, it becomes a little bit crazy, filled with hatred towards the ones that don't support it. Or, you know, it's like. It's getting it's getting out of hand, and, and, and in my opinion, and we talked about stress a little bit ago, but that's a big bubble. Our immune system is what we need to protect to keep us from getting COVID, but yet stress is breaking it down. Lack of sleep is breaking it down. Working from home, fighting with your spouse, homeschooling your kids, it all plays a role in, in your immune system. Yeah, one thing that people I've not heard people talk about that it's kind of like a passion of my wife and I. We just because of the way we built our family, we just have right. a passion for at-risk and disadvantaged kids. You know, right. and one thing I have not heard in the media, maybe maybe they're talking about it in in Georgia, but I haven't heard it. You know, if you look at kids in inner cities, at-risk kids, right, losing a year of their education, a year and a half of their education, right. you know. 
they already had disadvantages and now we took a year and a half away. Give yeah. them an iPad and say, get some internet and get educated. Like maybe, you know, where, where my office is at Midlothian, it's outside of Richmond. It's, you know, it's a suburb area. The, the, you know, those kids will be fine. Their parents are taking, getting their tutors and stuff. The Irish kids, you know, I'm concerned. Losing a year right. and a half of your education is huge. What's the impact of that? You know, right. childhood anxiety, depression, you know, this whole reentry anxiety disorder, people, you know, suicide rates are being up. You know, there's one article I was reading five or six months ago looking at the worldwide effect of the lockdown, not COVID, but just like people not accessing care. You know, right. and this is worldwide. So this is like in third world countries, maybe up to 40 to 50 million people will die from the secondary effects of everything we've done. And that's where we just weren't, where everything became, was, became so short term. No one's looking at how does this affect Long term. us a year, two, three, four down right. the road, you know? And that's in my, you know, there's lots, everybody has their own concern. You know, the elderly, I have a lot of patients with Alzheimer's, cognitive issues, being isolated, right. separated from their families. You know, when you're really, when you're older and you're younger, your peer group, either your family or your peers are like the most important people to you. Guess right. what? We took, we took that away from you. What's the impact of that? Right. And to date, that's been like, ah, oh, we don't worry about that. You know, it's like, well, if anything, all this has brought the mental health issue in our country, like to the forefront. We can't ignore it anymore. Right. Yeah. We have an epidemic of loneliness with us too. I know many single people that are haven't left their houses or to, other than go to the grocery store, or the post office, or people that work from home or they haven't been because churches shut down, you know, so there's no more community of the church in a lot of places. I'm fortunate enough to have a, still a church community, but I mean, there's a lot going on with this. And, and like I said, it, it all goes back to what's going on in our hearts and our guts and our immune system and the stress, and our sleep. Like sleep is a big one, you know? Like you need to sleep. It's just, I don't know where it stops or how this reverses itself, but it, it really needs to stop and or needs to be corrected. But anyway, I mean, the vaccines, another biggie. I know that you're, you, as we were talking before we started this about the vaccine, if you want to dive into that a little bit, that's up to you. Otherwise, I want to talk about diet and lifestyle before we close out. Okay. I mean, I feel like I've talked about the vaccine so much. That's okay. all I've been talking about for it. So I, we can dive into the lifestyle. No. So unless you've got a question about the vaccine. No, no, no. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot <laughs> okay, pole. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just assume not talk about it. But Well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about diet and lifestyle, how that affects our overall, our bodies. Um, according to current literature from the University of Florida, half of all chronic disease in our country can directly be attributed to eating processed foods. The Harvard School of Public Health, Walter Willett, probably one of the top epidemiologists in the country, the state of the 80% of heart disease and 7% of most cancer can be permitted by diet and lifestyle. So all of a sudden, half of all chronic disease, 80% of the number one killer, 70% of the number three slash number two killer, soon to be number one killer, right? Can, there's like cancer be number one killer soon, can be prevented by diet and lifestyle. So all of a sudden, the biggest impact on your health has got nothing to do with me. You know? And so, it's really, which is a big shift because when I was in medical school, I was told diet didn't make a difference. Didn't matter. You know, we had, I don't, we had like, you know, maybe an hour or two of nutritional stuff taught to us. And with our family, with our daughters, you know, we've seen how changing diet has changed the trajectory of their health. You know, my son, when we got him, when he was six months old, he was wheezing. 
Uh, my wife would sleep with him on her chest. We adopted, you know, we do- I mentioned him, but he, we adopted all of our kids, including third son. And he was wheezing when we first got him on her chest. And she slept with him at night because she was scared he'd stop breathing mm. in his sleep. His skin was all oily. It was patchy. It was just really a mess. And now he has no problems breathing. He hasn't had an asthma issue for, I don't know, seven, eight years. And that's been all environment, diet. Is a big part of that environment, getting in the clean environment, clean water, clean food, clean air. You know, it's, it's like the detox, right? Clean water, clean food, clean air, clean relationships. Clean food's an important part. It's a pivotal part. You know, not the only part, but it's, you know, if you, it's huge. You know, it's kind of right. crazy. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't stick diesel fuel in your gas tank and, oh my gosh, my car didn't start. Like, what's going on? It's like, but yeah, our bodies are so well designed that you can actually put stuff into them for decades before they kind of break down. And then you can like start doing the right thing and reverse it. That's just, your body's almost want to be well. It's just, right. that's one of the things is like, you know, it's like to see someone who comes to me, who's, you know, I, I, when I was in the military, I had a, um, a colonel and he was full bird colonel, did a physical arm. His A1C was 10. Okay. Yes. So if you're him at the military, that means you're not worldwide deplorable. So I'm a young captain, just fresh in the air force telling this colonel, like your career's over. You're done. I'm going to give you a C. I'm going to C code you. I got to start the board for you. And he's like, you know, son, give me, give me a month. I'm like, you know, you know, you've been doing, you've, you've been, this has been your life. I'll give you a month, right? I was, I was, you know, different. I, I was raised, respect, raised respect, authority, and right, I right. appreciate what he did in our country. So I'm like, sure. Started on a little bit, like 500 milligrams of metformin. He came back in, in a month. His A1C was seven. Now, if you know anything about the way A1Cs work, you're supposed to wait three to four months, right? The half, right, right. you know, hemoglobin 120 right. days. So for him to drop it from ten to seven, massive. You know, at three months, he was off the metformin. His A1Cs were six. Wow. Like, how do you... He was motivated. And this is where the personalized part you're asking. This is where, like, I gave him the tools. I right. said, do this diet, do these things. And he was, you know, your career's over, sir. You're done. You're out. You're a full colonel. He was motivated. You know, I've seen truck drivers with crazy high A1Cs. And I'm like, you can't drive. You, your A1Cs is 11 or 12. I have one patient that was 12. And like, you need to be on insulin. You can't drive a truck if you're on insulin. You know... Super, super motivated. Got all, got him down. He basically controlled his his diabetes uh, with just metformin and um, one other oral medication. Like that's unheard of in a, in a regular conventional model where I just say, "Here's your medication, have a right. great life." Um, and that's where I think the um, the diet lifestyle is huge. And the patient, the person, your involvement. You got to own your health, own your body, own your right. own your choices. Right. And that's why I think you know um, it's huge. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. Is that you know. If you're worried about COVID and you're eating at breakfast at McDonald's every morning, you have a problem. You know, I, I'm not going to, the listeners know my story, but I'm going to, I was diagnosed in 2007, I was diagnosed with metabolic disorder, high blood pressure, cardiovascular, I had A1C was five of 6.2 or 6.3. I had liver enzymes were crazy bad. My cholesterol panel, my lipid panel was crazy bad. And the doctor, my doctor is a great guy. And he read, was writing me prescriptions. And like, he said, I took them. He wrote, handed them to me. He goes, here. I said, no, I can't do this. He goes, why? I said, because my dad died from metabolic disorder or metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And so I took him over and threw him in the trash. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to change. He goes, okay. Come see me in three months. So I came back and, and I, I started, I was at two, almost 290 at that point. And I got down to 
like 240 by the time in three, 250 in three months. But then I just kind of kept creeping down, but I, I made some changes and, and some people call me like a, well, the, I'm the rebel health coach, but I did it. And now I'm a little bit adamant about when people are eating junk food because I, I don't, I hate seeing people suffer, you know? And like you said, I'm trying to be an advocate for change in the, in this aspect. And you are an advocate for it with, because you're children. And, you know, I just, I just think that sometimes you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, when is enough enough? And when am I going to make the changes? You know? And I think also ed- doing what you're doing, educating people, doing this podcast, doing things we educate people, because it's still, still a lot of people have no idea that the oils, that the partially plasticized, you know, I got my computer right here. It's made out of plastic. Right. That's a, you take a liquid oil and you turn it into plastic. That's what hydrogenation is. You know, right. margarine is partially plasticized vegetable oil. I mean, and then to think that the structure of your cell membranes, right. your, 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 body, your body is a house, right? Right. Temple, you know, and, and the walls, the, the two by fours are fats or lipids. And just take those and they need to be flexible and move really, really well. And that's what makes hormones work better, right? Right. So all my patients with hormone issues, I focus on lipids, you know, cholesterol actually, you know, you know how this works, right? right? But like that is going to have a massive impact on your metabolism. Fatty liver disease is a correlation with fatty liver disease and trans fats, hydrogenated fats and oils. And so it's just like, People, but people need to know to know that and hear it over and over and over again because it's like, yep, they have to get reeducated because, like, how, how can this be true? People, if this was that bad, if Coke was just as bad as smoking for my health, right? Then of course the government would ban it, right? Right. And so it's that's where just educating people actually know this: you're eighty percent of heart disease, seventy percent of cancers. This is Harvard School of Public Health, right. diet and lifestyle, half of all chronic disease purely direct, directly associated with consumption of processed foods. And right. so I think saying that, I say it over, I say it statistic over and over again, because eventually it'll stick and make sense. And, and this message would not have made sense 15 years ago. Right. And now at the stage where people are actually looking for clean food, clean water, and it just, it's a process. So it takes time, right. you know. So let me ask you before we close out, how are your children now, your daughter? Super awesome. Actually, my wife um, did a video looking at her. She's four, um, 14 now, getting turned 15. But looking at a video when she was 11, trying, and it was basically the, her therapist was trying to help her get in a wheelchair and then okay. help her try to get out of the wheelchair. And it's just, and kids with CP don't progress. They, once they start hitting a growth spurt, they tend to regress. So typically, once they hit eight or nine, that's kind of it. Every time she's plateaued, we've done something new and she's continuing to improve. And to look at, her when she was 11 versus 14 and see uh-huh. like her get in a chair. Like she couldn't get in a chair and getting out chair. And then this other day, she literally went from the ground, got up into a wheelchair, turned around, got down, got back down the ground. And that's not supposed to happen. You know, that's awesome. To see my second daughter who had, you know, I'm going to deep. My wife tells me to be careful about what I say about my daughter, my kids on, you know, <laughs> stuff. But um, to see her facial features change, right? You know, over the last 10 years, it's, it's huge. Yeah. It's inspiring. And it's like, that's one of people know, like you, you can change the trajectory of your health, of your kid's health. And when we get into things like transgenerational epigenetic priming, okay, it's a big fancy word. Okay. Right. What does that mean? It means as a, as a female, when you're pregnant and your daughter's in your womb, the eggs for your grandchildren and her ovaries are being epigenetically primed for austerity 
or for plenty, you know, and that's data going back to the World War II, to the right, Dutch right. bread famine, and also to the mouse famine in China, and to see how those mothers that are pregnant, how it affects their grandchildren self. Like you can, you know, it's scary, but but it's also empowering. You can change these things. Yep. And these and these changes can impact impact your kids and your grandkids. Yep. I'm a firm believer in the fact that God made our bodies so incredible that given the right environment, it will heal itself. And that's that's one. I mean, that's one of the tenets. You know, we talk. I remember hearing about this when I first started functional medicine. They talked about you know the basic: guy, take away what your body doesn't need, give it what it's lacking, take away what it doesn't need, need, and let it do, and just get out of the way and let it do the rest. And it's amazing how your it's almost like your body wants to heal. It wants you. It wants that cut to heal up. Right. It wants the bronchitis to go away. You're tired in the day. You want to get good night's rest and wake up refreshed. Right. You're not waking up refreshed. Why? You know, you're you're not healing quickly. You bruise easily. Why? What's what's going on with the natural way things were designed so that, that you're not self healing or, or self regenerating appropriately? And that's where people say, "Oh, I'm getting older." I'm like, "Well, I mean, you know, I see a lot of older patients. My <laughs> granddad was my granddad was 101 years old. Took took a vitamin E every day." <laughs> That was it. And he fell, broke his hip, and he was dead three days later. Right, right. But that, that, that was his health history, basically. Did fine. And like he walked every day. He took care of a garden. You know, he ate yep. food my grandma made for him. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that generation. And uh, they, like you said, they walked. I mean, my grandpa, he walked to the bus stop, got on the bus, rode down to the Detroit Free Press on the bus, walked to the, from the stop to the work, got back on the bus to come home. Got walked to back home, you know, and then he got home and mowed the lawn with one of those push mowers with. Oh yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Yes, you push. You have to. You are the. You are the right. horse. You're you the motor. Yeah. Right, and you know, I, I think there's something to be said for that, and I, and also what they ate. I mean, you know, they made the food. You bought the food. They processed. They made the food. They didn't buy it out of a can or from a restaurant down the street or have Uber Eats deliver it. You know, so what would you like to close with? I'm going to give you a f- whatever you want to talk about. What would you like to tell the listeners? I think, you know, the foundational things are foundational. Pillars of the pillars. And that's diet, lifestyle, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, relationship. You know, we you know I hear people talk about biohacking. That's really popular. I go on, on, on Clubhouse, people biohack this and that. And the, the ultimate biohack is the, the foundational stuff. Right. You know, it's getting right. your sleep, getting your exercise, stress reduction eating healthy food, listening to your body. When you're hungry, eat. If you're not hungry, don't put stuff in your, you know, following the natural concourse of the day. And sun goes down, you know, maybe we should think about going to bed. It comes up, you know, just listening to these things. That's, that's huge. And so yes, functional medicine, integrated medicine, lifestyle medicine, translational medicine, whatever you, you know, whatever you want to call it, does have a lot of cool supplements and procedures. And I've used all of them on my daughter and it's just made massive changes. But the biggest thing was when we, I, sat, I flew when she went, wasn't able to eat. I was right. flying food in her mouth and we're giving her food. And that's, it went, we went from giving her, you know, she was getting bottled food to actual real food. And it's amazing how powerful that is, you know? It, you're right. Crazy. I've got, man, I, I bless you and your wife for doing that for those kids. That's amazing. Where can people find you? That's a great question. These days, I'm, I'm more active in social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm using those things to kind of put like little snippets. Little th- that's my educational platform. Hey, you know, educate, right? right? Here's how the environment affects your health. Here's how diet. Here's how fructose. Here's how sugar affects your health. 
I've got some things on our website that actually um, a reading list. You talked about Dr. Bland. His book is on my reading, reading list of books to read. I've got educational things out there. And also on our website, we have a community we've set up, a place where people can come in a, in a community of people that are like-minded. I have courses out there I've launched. And the first one is Roadmap to Resilience, where it kind of goes through the foundations of functional medicine, lays them out, kind of instructs people how to self-evaluate your leverage points, figure out your own timeline. And then kind of, you know, one of the big aspects with chronic health issues is just the mind-body connection. And so like, that's my first foundational course in that community. So um, you can look at my website, Richmond Integrated Functional Medicine, if you're interested in that. Um, follow me on social media. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to get the, the news out there, the word out there. I feel like with all this COVID stuff, with my involvement, I'm a clinical researcher. I've been involved with over 60 clinical studies. So I've got my feet in different worlds. You know, I think like I'm, I've been positioned, my wife and I feel like we've been positioned in this time, this place for a reason. So I'm just trying to use my mind I've been given, the passion I've been given to help educate people, encourage and empower them to take um, hold of their their health. You know, we can, you know, you can have all the education you want, all the resources you want, but if you don't have your health and don't enjoy it, it's huge. And I think one of the things Americans have been sacrificing for in our culture for the last couple of decades is our health, you know? So I just want people to be healthy. Yeah, exactly. What's next for you? What's next? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so we're working, on, you know, we're working on developing courses as well through our online okay. community and um, continue to develop social media information. So I'm kind of just kind of trying to figure my course with that. Okay. That's kind of what we're doing is working on the our, our community, working on courses and all that stuff. You follow me on social media or just join our... Okay. Um, I'm going to um, put the links in the show notes. So It could, yeah. So just yep. I'll put information out there. I think education and just... I've had patients with my COVID stuff. I put a COVID guide out there. I put a COVID guide out in April of last year, you know, I put a cheat sheet on on COVID. I'm going to go take that up. Yeah. And I'm putting together a post-COVID long hauler thing together because, again, we're entering the post-pandemic epidemic. So if you want to be a part of that stuff, just um, sign up for the newsletter and those things as I push them out there, follow me. You'll be, you'll be a part of that as well. All right. I know you're a busy man, but I know you have to take some self-care time. So if you had say 30 to 45 minutes just to take some Dr. Hartman time, what album or artist would you put on to listen to? Oh, I was not expecting that question. I, you know, I could have answered that question 30 years ago. <laughs> wow. You know, James Taylor is very relaxing. Yeah. Yes, he is. He, he comes right to mind. I still remember listening to him back when I was in um, medical school. One friend's house on the boat, looking at the stars, just kind of yeah. little guitar, nature. I am um, my love for music has been sacrificed for my love for learning and knowledge. My downtime, to be honest with you, is just being outside on my farm, working with my hands, right. watching the birds, uh, watching the sunset, watching nature. And I love looking at the stars with my kids, just laying down at night and just talking. I did, my right. son and I have this really cool game we do with the kids as we just look in this, look at the clouds and they go over. What do you see? Just laying back there and looking at the clouds and just oh, that's awesome. using our imagination. And it's amazing. You can see alligators and fish and all kinds of stuff in the clouds. And right, right. Yeah, you know, as they go over. Yes. How old is your son? He is 10. Okay. Awesome. All right. God bless you. Take care of yourself. And thank you so much. 
Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.